Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. That's enough music. That is enough music. Okay. Good morning, everybody. What's up? Chris coming at you again with another solo episode. Um, editor's note, I've got some uh, some new microphone cables, and it seems to me like it's making a difference. Like, I'm listening to my voice right now. Sounds terrific. So... Had a little bit of a buzz in the microphone, and I'm not an audio person, so I'm trying to figure it out. I think it might have been the cords, so I got some better cords, and problem solved. So I don't know if anybody will notice, or if anybody had noticed, that little bit of a buzz, kind of a static sort of sound. Problem solved, though. Thing of the past. All right, so what is on the agenda today, you guys? Okay, Play-Doh. So we did a little Play-Doh before. Um, I'm going to, at a minimum, I'm going to do this one and one other. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down on Play-Doh like I did with Maps of Meaning and end up committing myself to six episodes. With Play-Doh, would probably be more than that. Um, but uh, basically what I decided to do is read the symposium, which we already did, and that was a kind of a famous uh, platonic dialogue. Something that many people already know um, because it's famous and it's been famous for a very long time. And there's a bunch like that. You know, there's uh, um, you know a handful of those dialogues that are really famous and well known. And the one that I decided to read today, it was not. Um, I had never heard of it. It's called Ion. Uh, I O N. Reminds me of um, Carl Jung. He wrote a book called Aeon, uh, A O N, which was all about. Um, all about these experiments he did with his with his unconscious where he would basically do this what he called active imagination which I've talked about didn't really want to uh, didn't mean on uh, going down this this particular path but just since I did um, Carl Jung would do this thing where he would basically fantasize or he would have these waking dreams that he could sort of he got good at so that he could sort of create these fantasy images and then his his sort of imagination would take the story places or it would bring images about in his mind that he would have to figure out the meaning behind. So it was kind of like a way for him to get close, closer to his unconscious to allow some of those things that would creep out of his unconscious unbeknownst to him to kind of happen on command. So it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like a, like a strategy to practice and try to figure out how to take control of your own fantasies so that you can you can cause those fantasy images to come into your mind when you want them to and not when they want themselves to which you know happens to you if you're if you're zoning out like let's say while you're trying to pay attention and other ideas and images pop in your head like imagine if you could 
put the reins on that and you could control when that happened and, and how deep you might be able to go exploring your own unconscious if you had that level of control over it. Um, so I, I bring all that up about Carl Jung only because this dialogue, Ion, happens to sound a lot like Jung's book, Aeon, but also because as we get into this, what you're going to find is that Plato had some ideas that would border on psychological. So, you you know, when we read Ion, I think what you'll see, what I'll try to get you to see, is that there were lots of ideas that Plato was talking about that later psychologists would talk about, specifically ideas about the unconscious. And um, who knew? Who knew those things go all the way back to Plato? I did not know. Uh, also, I kind of thought this episode might be a little bit on the short side. The reason is that this dialogue, Ion, is kind of on the short side. There's not a lot to it. So the number of quotes I have to read are pretty limited. It, so in this case, it's going to be a little bit more me talking about my ideas and thoughts on this. But but this basically two things that I thought we could get from reading Ion, which, again, they were a surprise to me when I read it. I had never read it before. I had never heard of it. Um, but two interesting things. The first one is um, a pretty good illustration about how these ancient Greeks thought of the gods. So we have this idea in the modern world that these ancient people that had beliefs in all these different gods, you know, the ones that come to mind are the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, you know, the Scandinavians, um, those come to pop right to mind, people that believed in this whole host of gods, that, that there was all these stories you, that people told about them. They all had their own personalities. They all had their own powers. Um, they were all unique from one another. They interacted with each other in different ways. And there's this all these stories and myths that go along with them. And these are the kind of things that come to our mind. Um, and we tend to believe that the people who actually worship those gods, who carved those statues and prayed to Diana and prayed to, you know, Bacchus and all that stuff, that, the, that these people believed that somehow behind the statue that they're praying to or sacrificing to, there's an actual deity. There's an actual superhuman creature that's something like a human being, but but something not, you know, something that you would call invisible, something that you would call maybe all-powerful, um, you know, that there's these ad these attributes that they give to these gods, and they believed them to be kind of like people. They had, they had desires, they had, you know, impulses, they made mistakes, you know, some of them could be killed, you know, so it's like, there's this idea of the gods being something like human beings, um, but so supernatural, and that their powers were used to influence human beings and, you know, life and nature in ways that we don't have any control over. And this is the way that we tend to describe these ancient people that worship and believe gods exist like that. We call it polytheism, many gods. And this is, this is how we generally believe. This is what I found when I was reading this Ion, though. That not, that's not exactly so cut and dry. It doesn't really seem like that. I, I tried to point this out before when we were reading about the pre-Socratics uh, and some of these ancient Greek philosophers that talked about God with a capital G and no S on the end. So there's no pluralizing it. God is a single thing. And those are the same Greeks that believed in all these different gods. So there's definitely something missing about the way people understand these polytheistic ancient people and how they believed gods existed, what they thought their relationship was to gods and man. Um, there's something missing there. So the idea that, that we 
that people believe that they were like that, I think, is is flawed and it's missing something really important because when you go back to the words of these actual ancient Greeks, they can say something about how one God is the same as another God or talk about God, like I say, with a capital G, that's like there's only one God. And in their and in their words, there's no conflict. There's no there's no reason to explain what they mean because everybody seemingly understood what they what they meant when they when they did that. But modern people don't. And so we kind of all have this idea that they believed in gods in some weird way that, like I'm going to hope to show you today, they didn't. Um, so like like the examples I was referring to from earlier podcasts are, you know, these Greeks that go to Egypt and they're, you know, studying with these Egyptian priests trying to figure out what the Egyptians know that the Greeks don't know. And they're talking about, you know, Zeus and Amun as if they're one god. You know, like different names for one God, and they just recognize that. And the Greeks are happy, and the Egyptians are happy to talk about these gods as if they're the same. And they're, no, they're, no culture is insulted by it. You know, it it's, it's kind of goes without saying that these supernatural forces exist. Surely they exist to the Egyptians the same as they do to the Greeks. Um, you know, the their latitude and longitude has nothing to do with, you know, the spiritual, spiritual energies that actually permeate the universe. They're all the same. So there's something missing about the way we understand, we pretend to understand how these people believed about religion. So that's kind of the first thing. Um, the second thing is, it, it may be more to the point of why I wanted to talk about this um, particular dialogue, is because Plato talks a lot about the unconscious, and he does it in a way that is very much like the way Jordan Peterson did. So I'll try not to steal too much of my thunder, but I want to mention when we did Maps of Meaning, and if you just heard me talk about Jordan Peterson, you probably heard uh, once or twice or, or a handful of times me talk about the way Jordan describes gods as transpersonal forces. And so this is like much more of a psychological way of thinking about it. But it goes something like this. Um, if you see, let's say, yourself get angry, irrationally angry, you know, we've all had a moment or two like that in our lives. So imagine a time when you were irrationally angry, the feeling of anger kind of possessed you. It took over your kind of rational mind to some degree. You couldn't break free from it, even though maybe at some point you realized you were in over your head or you were being mean or you were being unreasonable, but you're too goddamn angry to pull back. You're possessed by it. So there's, there's that experience. Like you have this experience that I am not myself right now that I've seemingly been overtaken by this emotion that's making me act in a way that I don't really want to or didn't expect to. Um, it's sort of pulling my strings like a puppet. Okay, you have that experience. And then you see somebody else have that experience. And you're like, oh shit, that thing that possessed me, that turned me into a monster and turned me into a wild animal for 30 seconds, I'm seeing that thing now getting its hooks into my neighbor, or my mother, or my friend. So you can see this anger possessing you, you can see it possessing somebody else, and suddenly you're like, okay, what in the heck is this? It's not, this isn't me, this isn't something I wanted for or asked for, it's something that flipped a switch in me, and I became this whole other thing, and didn't have, didn't have a, a, you know, a, a choice in the matter, didn't have any control over it, couldn't fight back against it, I was possessed by it, and it possesses other people too, just like me, and we can't. We, we don't have any control over it. I don't have, we don't have any say in it. It just happens. So what am I describing? So the Greeks say, you're describing God. What Jordan Peterson would say, or Carl Jung, or a psychologist would say, is something a little different. Something like, 
a transpersonal force, that what you've identified is a force that impacts you in the same way as it does other people. And uh, you don't know the origin of it. You don't know what what caused it. But it seems to maybe pass from one person to another person. It's like there's this like this cloud, this invisible cloud of anger that just floats around the community. And when it, when you walk through it, when it passes through you, suddenly suddenly you're not yourself anymore. You're you're filled up with that cloud. You're possessed by anger. You become something like anger. You're not a human being exactly anymore. You're 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 just this one thing, this one emotional force that's overcome you. Okay, so um, so Plato, when he talks about gods, he does it kind of like the latter. He does it kind of like a psychologist does. And that is not at all what you expect from classical antiquity. At least I didn't. It's not at all what you expect from you know these, these classical ancient people that believe in all these gods. So what I think I'll do is read this to you um, like I usually do. I want to give you a little bit of a uh, summary because like I do with these dialogues, it's really kind of problematic. It's difficult because this is a conversation. This one maybe isn't so bad because it's a conversation between two people, um, Ion and Socrates. And uh, like the last one we did, there was you know a symposium. There was like five different people in the conversation and trying to pull out quotes in a conversation especially between more than two people where they make sense out of context, it's very difficult. So this one wasn't as bad, but I, what I, I want to do the same thing I did before and give you a little bit of summary of what's actually going on in the dialogue. It's not just a conversation between two people, even though that's the, the meat of the dialogue. It's, it's like a play. So you can see there's, there's something going on, there's something being acted out. And uh, so something like this. So Ion returns from a festival in some other city. He comes back to Athens where Socrates is. He bumps into Socrates. And he just starts talking to him. And he says, hey, I was out at this festival in this other other city. Um, There was a uh, basically a competition uh, going on where these uh, people, these mostly young people, I believe, were going and they were reciting Homer publicly in front of all these gathered people at the, at the festival. So they go up there and they're, they're reciting, you know, you can imagine somebody reciting Shakespeare or something like that, like doing a monologue. He's doing something like that with Homer. So he, you know, the, the Iliad, the Odyssey, whatever he's doing scenes like that. And a bunch of people are doing it. And there's apparently judges. So you can imagine, you know, you're, there's judges that are there that are, um, that are telling you, you know, um, giving you a score, telling you who did better and who wins. And uh, that's what Ion was super enthusiastic, super enthusiastically talking to Socrates about. Um, and so um, he asks Socrates, he says, look, why is it that I get so caught up in Homer? Every time, every time I have an opportunity to recite Homer, I, I just love it. You know, I, t- I just, I want to do it. I, you know, it inspires me. It's like the most beautiful language, the most... Um, you know, like it paints the most vivid picture in my mind. So I, I can listen to any other poet, you know, and he talks about like Hesiod and, you know, all these different uh, different people that were doing similar things to Homer at that time. It's like nobody really speaks to me like Homer does. Why is that? You know, I don't get jazzed about anybody else, but when I hear Homer, I, I it just speaks to me and it inspires me. And, um, you know, he said, not even Hesiod does that to me. And And Socrates is like, um, he's like, well, he, he provides an answer to that question. And that's kind of what the dialogue is about is Socrates answering that question. Um, 
why does Ion find Homer beautiful? Why does it inspire him and make him want to, you know, recite it publicly? Because, you know, young people are often embarrassed to be the center of attention and to be, you know, uh, the, the center of public scrutiny. Why does this guy, why does this guy want to get out in public in front of strangers and recite Homer? Because it's, because it's, you know, it's really speaking to him. It's really filling his spirit, you might say. So Socrates starts answering the question, and here's where we're going to get into the quotes. He says, I perceive, Ion, and I will proceed to explain to you what I imagine to be the reason of this. The gift which you possess of speaking excellently about Homer is not an art, but, as I was just saying, an inspiration. There is a divinity moving you, like that contained in the stone which Euripides calls a magnet, but which is commonly known as the stone of Heraclea. This stone is not, not only attracts iron rings, but also imparts to them a similar power of attracting other rings. And sometimes you may see a number of pieces of iron and rings suspended from one another, so as to form quite a long chain. And all of them derive their power of suspension from the original stone. In like manner, the muse, first of all, inspires man herself. And from these inspired persons, a chain of other persons is suspended who take the inspiration. For all good poets, epic as well as lyric, compose their beautiful poems, not by art, but because they are inspired and possessed. So I'll stop there for the first bit. So Socrates is like, look, Ion, the reason why Homer appeals to you so much and nobody else seems to, it's not because you have some affinity for the art of Homer uh, over anybody else. It's not because you have affinity for art at all. It's because whatever it was that inspired Homer to write those words, it passes from Homer to you. So it's like you become possessed by whatever inspiration that provide, that inspired Homer to write it in the first place. And it sort of passes from him to you. And so the inspiration that you feel, the reason why it speaks to you so deeply, the reason why it moves you, the reason why you would put you know, your own, um, 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 you know, that you, you would put aside the, the, the risks of making a fool out of yourself in public, let's say, to, to speak those beautiful words in front of people, because you just feel like you must, that what you, what's happened is that you've been possessed. So, so this is interesting. And in the words he uses, he says, there is a divinity moving you and you're possessed. So what does that what does that bring to mind? You know, it brings to mind all of the you know amazing uh, and terrible, but for that matter, um, horror movies about you know demon possession. You know, I, I'm trying to think of my my favorite. Maybe uh, the Exorcism of Emily Rose was probably one I would recommend if you like that sort of thing. But you can imagine you can imagine a spirit coming into your body like Emily Rose, and uh, you know, or The Exorcist or something, and it sort of pushes out or pushes down or aside your own your own spirit and it just sort of takes over your body and you don't seem to have a lot of control over that it, it's winning you know it's it's managed to uh you know it's managed to subdue you and it's taken over that's what's mean but that's what's meant by you know being becoming possessed and this is how socrates is explaining it to him it's like look the muse, the god, the power of the god, the muse, the thing that, that the Greeks believed caused inspiration, like creative and artistic inspiration, um, that, that that spirit possessed Homer. 
And the reason that you get the chills up and down your arms and the reason you feel so inclined to speak those beautiful words, the reason they sound beautiful to you at all is because what's happening is that spirit that possessed Homer is possessing you. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so this is how he describes it. Um, all right. So what, let's see here. So this is what I meant when I said that the, that the muse, that the God is being described by Plato as an interpersonal force, not exactly as a God, but as an interpersonal force. So it passes from one person to another and it affects them in a way that's against their will. Well, at least not exactly not against their will. It's some, it's something that, uh, you know, um, Ion didn't ask for it, right? It just imposed itself on him that, that he feels this way about Homer. Um, so, um, so it flows through people like a, like a virus or he describes it like a magnetic field. And what's interesting there, of course, is that Plato, this is coming from a time when they didn't, when people didn't understand magnetism or electromagnetism. So there was this stone in a place called Heraclea that had these magnetic properties and it must've been powerful enough that people noticed and it became sort of like a, like a, um, like people would travel from all over to see this crazy thing, this, this, this stone that attracts metal, you know, it wasn't well known magnetism. And so, so even Plato here, he says that Euripides calls a magnet, like this is a novel word, a magnet that doesn't exactly exist in their, in their world because there's only this one example of it. Um, so anyway, it's funny that he uses, he brings this up, but it's because the way that a magnet, that a magnetic field passes through a magnet and if you put other metal objects on it, how that field passes through those metal objects. You've all done this with paper clips and a magnet in elementary school, I'm sure of it. And suddenly you find yourself being able to pick up another paper clip with the end of your paper clip that's touching the magnet. Or maybe even with the, you know, several, five, six, seven paper clips down the line and you're still picking up new paper clips because of the, the magnetic field is running through all of them. It comes from the source, from the magnet, and it runs through all of these paper clips. Socrates is saying, look, the, the magnet is God. It's the divine. Homer was that first paper clip and you are the last paper clip, right? You're, you're just the last in this stream of, con of connection between uh, one human being and another that are inspired by the gods. It's amazing. Um, all right, so inspiration comes from the realm of the gods and the muses specifically in this example um, from, from outside of the self. So that's how they're seeing it. They're seeing it as something that's coming from outside of the self and yet we respond to them unconsciously and involuntarily. So we know how to respond to them, um, to, the, to the muses, to the inspiration. And our response to that is to create something. So when people are possessed by the muses, like Homer, he's writing poetry, or he's or somebody is possessed by that inspiration. They're they're painting a painting, they're carving a statue, they're doing something creative. That that is how you respond to this interpersonal force that the Greek the Greeks are calling the muses. So whatever that is, that force that inspires you, it's causing you to do something creative. And so this is interesting. You know, he you know what I, the, what I'm pointing out is that Plato is saying we. We know how to respond when we're inspired by the muses. We know we create something when that happens to us. Even if we've never had that experience before. 
Even if we've never been inspired before, the first time it happens, we have that artistic impulse and we, we want to sit down and draw something or paint something or sculpt something or make something or engineer something. We, want it, we, we have that instinct. Uh, even the first time, you know what, it's, what that instinct is, is pulling you to do. You know what it's driving you to do. And so I'm going to bring up Jordan Peterson in this context because I think it's super interesting. So Jordan, Jordan says something uh, in Maps of Meaning when he's talking about meaning in general. And he says, he says that objects, they both are something and they mean something. And that we don't exactly make a distinction between what things are and what they mean. It's really actually quite hard to do that. Um, and he also says that, uh, that what something means is its implication for action. It's so when if I encounter something that whatever that thing means to me is like what it means for what I can do with it. You know, what, what can I do with it? What can I do to it? What can it do to me? It's how do we fit together? You know, so the meaning of a cup is that I can pick it up, that I can put things in it, that I can drink from it. You know, the, so the meaning has something to do with what you do when you're in its presence, when you have it in your hands, when you're looking at it, what it is that you can do or it, it can do with you or you with it. That's what its meaning is somehow. And so knowing how to respond to something is knowing what it means. So that's kind of what Jordan Peterson's saying. And what's interesting in this con context is that Plato's saying these people know how to respond to inspiration. Um, they know the meaning of it, even if they've never encountered it before. They know how to, re how to respond or react. It's to be creative. So... So we somehow know its meaning, and we know how to respond to it prior to ever having experienced it. That's what philosophers call a priori. It's like an instinct. It's like something that we know, but there's no reason, reason for us to know it. It's like you, you, you take a newborn baby, you put it in a, in a bathtub, and it will f turn over onto its back and float so that it doesn't drown. How does it know to do that? You know, it's like that sort of thing. We don't know. We just have these instincts, these things that we know before experience, before we've ever been taught it. And this is one of them, this instinct for meaning. Okay. And that's what Plato's saying. He's like, when we have this, this quasi religious experience, this feeling of being inspired and wanting to create something. And that feeling seems to come from somewhere outside of us, but yet we know how to, how to respond to it, even if we've never experienced it before. So as Jordan Peterson would say, it's instinctual, it's inborn, and so it's something he calls an unconditioned stimulus. And further, Jordan says, that is how we know it's a god. And this is a little bit harder to explain, but the idea of an unconditioned stimulus is basically, if you just think about um, like the Pavlov's dog example from the early days of psychology, it's like you, you, you ring a bell and you give a dog a treat, you ring a bell and you give a dog a treat, and then after a long enough time has gone by, you can ring the bell and the dog's mouth will start watering whether or not you give him a treat or not because he comes to associate the bell sound with getting a treat. So eventually you're going to condition the dog to, to salivate when he hears a bell, even though a bell has nothing to do with, it, with, with food. Um, that's, a, that's an example of a conditioned stimulus. This is an unconditioned stimulus. This is something that happens a priori, before any experience. You've not been taught this. You just know. You just know how to respond to it. That's weird. That's weird. It's also a little bit hard to explain. It's also a little bit 
a little bit magical, a little bit spiritual. And, and so Jordan says there, that's one component is that this is an unconditioned stimulus. It's something that you know, even though you have no reason to know it. That's amazing. Um, he also says that that that's how you know it's a god. This the fact that it's instinctual, that it's in it's in you, you know, already. Um, and the way he describes it in Maps of Meaning is that something that has uh, something that is something and means something together simultaneously. That that is an interesting thing. It's like if a, if I see a snake and I know what a snake means, a snake might mean food it might mean you know a certain type of motion it might mean you know some kind of fear because i because snakes are oftentimes poisonous so you know what a snake is is all of those things how it moves what it's made of what i can do with it or what, what rather what it means is what i can do with it and part of what it means is that i need to get away from it because it might be poisonous it, it might it might strike me and and i might die so I have to know what it means, um, just the same as I have to have to know what it is, and those things aren't necessarily the same thing, or they're not obviously the same thing, but we take them somehow to be the same, and and this is what he's getting at. It's like when the experience of something controls how you behave or what you should do, if if it makes you want to do something, then it has a power over you. It has a power to make you do something. And that is how it's a God in this old, in this classical way of understanding a God. It's like an invisible force that acts upon you and makes you do something that you don't, you would, you wouldn't say you were trying to do. That's what a God is. It's a supernatural force that can impact you and persuade you and, and change your life and impact you in the, in the world somehow in ways that aren't clear because what they mean cause you to behave a certain way. And you have no control over that. And yet somehow you understand it even when you've never experienced it before. So this is the magic of things. This is, this is, this is how you know, human beings believed uh, in su- supernatural creatures and gods. This, this is the way that it makes sense to us. It's not like this caricature, like, like, we, like we try to paint these classical people uh, out, out to be kind of telling these crazy stories and animating them with these half human, half animal creatures, like a Dr. Seuss book. And, you know, you know, like it's like, it's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. Those things have all sorts of meaning that we are brushing off when you say it's ridiculous. All right. So again, this idea of, 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 um, um, of, of, of this sort of invisible supernatural force, in this case, this inspiration, this feeling that you get, this creative inspiration, that this is something that is, that is an unconditioned stimulus. It's something we know how to respond to. Uh, it's something that has an implication for our action, something that, that we know how to respond to. And so Jordan, again, Jordan says that's how we know it's a God. It's something that we, we know it before we know it. It acts on us and we cannot control it. We see it acting on others in the same way, and, and they don't seem to be able to control that either. So this is the recognition of the idea of the unconscious. You know, this, the idea that, the, again, as Carl Jung would say, the unconscious is populated by these archetypes. These archetypes correspond to our instincts. They are transpersonal forces, just like we're describing with the muses. So here we are, Plato, 2,300 years before Carl Jung, saying those things that Carl Jung would say 2,300 years later. All right. All right, so he, uh, Plato continues in the same, same paragraph. He says, 
uh, and by the way, there's some Greek words here, so we'll see if, see if I can pronounce them. He says, um, and as the Cori, as the Cori Banshin revelers, when they dance, are not in their right mind. So the lyric poets are not in their right mind when they are composing their beautiful strains. And when falling under the power of music and meter, they are inspired and possessed. Like Bacchic maidens who draw milk and honey from the rivers when they are under the influence of Dionysus, but not when they are in their right mind. And the soul of the lyric poet does the same, as they themselves say, for they tell us that they bring songs from honeyed fountains, calling them out of the gardens and dells of the muses. They, like the bees, winging their way from flower to flower. And this is true, for the poet is a light and winged and holy thing, and there is no invention in him until he has been inspired and is out of his senses, and the mind is no longer with him. When he has not attained to this state, he is powerless and is unable to utter his oracles. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Amazing. So a couple things that, that I want to bring up here. Um, he's talking about Corybantian revelers, and he's talking about Bacchic maidens. He brings these two examples up. So the um, the Corybantian, again, I'm probably mispronouncing that, those were people that worshipped uh, the goddess Sibyl or Sibylle. I don't know how you pronounce that either. Um, and they had these ecstatic rituals that involved dancing. So just like a lot of tribal cultures, a part of their religious um, exercises are to do things like ecstatic rituals. And a lot of them from you know, from Africa, let's say, Australia, from North and South America, a lot of these tribal religions involved exactly this. Uh, you guys, if you think about Native Americans, you might have heard of something like the rain dance or something like that. You can imagine getting out there into rhythmic music, drumming, uh, dancing for hours, maybe days, maybe mul you know, multiple days, you know, nonstop until you're exhausted and, you know, you're not eating, you're not drinking. You would, at some point, you would, you would literally lose your right mind. You would become, you know, as you can imagine from sleep deprivation, from food deprivation, you would start to hallucinate. You would start to, um, see and hear things that aren't there. You'd become lightheaded. At some point your consciousness changes and you have this other state of consciousness. And this is something that's linked to the mystic experience that I talk about all the time. The, that one with the universe religious experience that people talk about having in all sorts of ways. This is one example, and he brings it up. He also brings up the Bacchic maidens. So Bacchus or Dionysus was another one of those mystery religions that that it was all about becoming intoxicated, and all of their all of their rituals and rites had to do with being intoxicated. So here you have two different references that are being brought up to these to these altered states of consciousness, one of which is, is achieved by ecstatic ritual, by dancing and dancing and dancing until you're, until you're losing your mind. The other one has to do with doing some sort of drugs until you're losing your mind. In either case, you, you can reach this point, this altered state of consciousness, where you, where you tap into this inspiration of, from the muses, where you tap into it. And, and here, Plato says that they, like the bees, winging their way from flower to flower, he says, for the poet is a light and winged and holy thing, and there is no invention in him until he has been inspired and is out of his senses. So I find this very interesting because this is coming from classical antiquity, from ancient Greece, and Plato is saying that the ability to tap into 
the knowledge of the gods, the, you know, the information that the muses are bringing from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm, in order for you to be inspired like that and to, and to, to bring something into existence like Homer did when he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, something, something beautiful and amazing, in order, in order for you to do that, you have to, you have to reach an altered state of consciousness. <laughs> so he, so this is coming, again, he's not, not in exactly those words, you know, but this is coming directly from Plato. He says one has to be out of their senses or out of their mind, in order to commune with the divine. So that, in, you know, put that a different way, that one must cease being themselves and become something or someone else. And it's not clear what that is, at least not yet. So we'll keep reading here, but uh, before I pick it up, I think it's interesting. Plato uses this uh, not in their right minds language to describe to describe the type of spiritual possession that he that he's describing when he's talking about the muses. So this is religious or creative inspiration, the kind of thing that makes somebody speak in tongues, the kind of thing that makes somebody speak the future. This you know, uh, the kind of thing that makes somebody um, um, you know paint a beautiful picture or try to bring some idea out of their, out of that they don't quite understand out of their unconscious into the world. This is the type of inspiration he's talking about. And he says, you, you have to, you have to be out of your senses to get there. And that's the type of inspiration that drives people to make art, to compose music and to engineer things. It's amazing. Now the word inspiration, it means something like to breathe in. I thought maybe inspiration had the word spirit in it. Maybe maybe it was related in that way, but it doesn't. It 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 literally goes back to to a word that means something like to breathe in. So to be to be inspired, you can kind of think about it like this. So imagine breathing in the spirit of the muses, taking them into yourself that way. And the word and the word spirit has always been connected to the to the idea of breath or air, because it's invisible that sort of thing. Um, so you breathe in the spirit, you, you, you become possessed by it, by breathing her in and, and her filling you, you're filling your lungs, filling your body. And it's also interesting because we, we, uh, Plato brought up Bacchus Dionysus and, and the, uh, the idea there that that's the God of wine. Uh, and he said this before, and I'll bring it up here that, um, that the word spirit, like when we use that word spirits to talk about wine or, or alcohol, um, that we use that word because of the way alcohol makes us feel. Uh, so I'd be willing to bet most people listening have heard, have felt that way a time or two. So you can kind of put some context on this. Um, getting drunk, it puts you into an altered state of consciousness. It inspires emotion. You know, it, it's some, for some people, you know, the angry drunk, it might it might inspire the wrong kind of emotion. It might make you. You know, it might make you super angry, but for a lot of people, it makes it makes you lovey-dovey. It makes you feel more connected to one another. It makes you it makes you feel less self-conscious and more. You know, it allows you to speak a little bit more freely and a little bit more honestly. So you can imagine you drink this alcohol, and what you've done is you've ingested the spirit of Bacchus or Dionysus, and that's how that's how it possesses you, just like inspiration, just like breathing in the muse, the spirit of the muses, you're drinking in the spirit of Dionysus and becoming possessed by the spirit. And if you've been drunk or drunk enough, you know, you know what Plato's means. You were possessed by the spirit of Dionysus. You weren't yourself. You weren't making the decisions you would be making if you were yourself. You know what I mean? 
You weren't acting as you would be acting if you were yourself. Why? Because you were possessed by the spirit of a God. You were impacted by this transpersonal force. It's amazing. All right, so back to Plato. He says, Many are the noble words in which poets speak concerning the actions of men. But like yourself, when speaking about Homer, they do not speak of them uh, by any rules of art. They are simply inspired to utter that to which the muse impels them, and that only. And when inspired, one of the hymns of praise, another choral strains, another epic or iambic verses. And he who is good at one is not good at any other kind of verse. For not by art does the poet sing, but by power divine. Had he learned by rules of art, he would have known how to speak, not of one theme only, but of all. And therefore, God takes away the minds of poets and uses them as his ministers, as he also uses diviners and holy prophets, in order that, that we who hear, who hear them may know them to be speaking not of themselves, who utter these priceless words in a state of unconsciousness, but that God himself is the speaker, and that through them he is conversing with us. All right, so let's stop there for a second. Amazing. So firstly, I want to point out, here Plato uses the word God twice in the singular. So God with a capital G, no S, as though there's only one God, and, and as though he's not a Greek who believes in dozens of gods. He's using God with a capital G like a Christian would. Pretty amazing. Uh, I pointed that out earlier, but I want to point it out again. Another interesting thing is, when he says that God, all right, so earlier we we're talking about you needed to be in a, in a, uh, out of your mind or out of your senses. And here he, he specifies what he means. He says, God takes away the minds of poets and uses them as, as his ministers. So this is really interesting. When you talk to a modern, you know, psychologist or, or, you know, psychonaut, somebody who, who's, uh, studies psychedelics, let's say people will say, that what he's describing is something called an ego death. And anybody who's ever done a psychedelic, um, you, you may have experienced this. Sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's not. Uh, but the idea that you lose sense of connection to yourself, to your identity, and you, you're, it's, you still have sensation, you still have memory, you're still, you know, you're still experiencing this, you know, often psychedelic type of experience, but you wouldn't say that you are experiencing it. Because you aren't exactly there. What you might say is something like, you've become the experience. Which is really difficult to understand, but that's how it feels. So, there's a death of the self. Or, you know, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't use the word I. Because I, it doesn't make sense in that context. You don't exist anymore. That's what I mean by an ego death. And that when that happens... Well, that's sort of the that's sort of the mystic experience in a, in a nutshell. It's another way of of describing it. But there's a euphoria involved with that. There is a um, there's sort of this eureka aha sort of moment where things make sense that 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 never really did before, and it, it it's accompanied by this one with the universe type of feeling. When you're e when you're when you have an ego death and the I goes away, you you become one with everything, and that's sort of what I mean. And this, interestingly, is what Plato is saying has to happen for the gods to speak through you, for you to be inspired and and be able to be creative in the way that Homer was creative. Um, now, he also, he also uses, uh, let's see here, um, 
Okay. He uses the word unconsciousness here for the first time, which absolutely blew my mind. Um, and he says, uh, let's, let's, he's basically saying that when you are having, um, when you're inspired and you're possessed by the muses, when you're having one of these religious experiences, one of these altered states of consciousness, he says, in order that uh, he says, uh, in order that we who hear them may know them to be speaking not of themselves who who utter these priceless words in a state of unconsciousness, but that God Himself is the speaker. Okay, unbelievable. So he's saying that that in this mystic experience. Um, that you believe is first. First of all, he says it's happening unconsciously. So where, where the connection is between you and the gods is something he's saying in a state of unconsciousness, which is exactly what Carl Jung would say many many years later, and it and something that Jordan Peterson says when when he talks about um, the the unconscious being the the psychoanalytic god. It's 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 something that you know, a, a psychologist, a psychoanalytic psychologist would put in the place of God because it's, it's functioning the same way. It serves the same purpose. And this is what Plato's saying in 400 BC. Unbelievable. And then he says that that is how you know that it's God speaking and not somebody pretending to be speaking for God because it's coming unconsciously. That's the same reason why Freud and Carl Jung suggest that people analyze their dreams and think think long and hard about their dreams because it, because the messages that are coming to you from yourself from your unconscious are valuable and they're being they're being given to you for a reason and you know Plato and the ancient Greeks would say hey that's that's the spirit of the gods inspiring you and Carl Jung would say that that's your unconscious trickling into your conscious state, trying to get you to see or notice something that you haven't, that you need to. So you have one perspective that's very religious and one perspective that's, you know, very scientific and psychological. And we're talking apples and apples. Amazing. Amazing. All right. So, um, so really what this is saying is that what Plato has said here is that messages from the divine realm can be communicated or spoken into the world from, from human beings in an, in an unconscious state. I mean, amazing. So God can speak or reveal ideas somehow through us. I mean, I've talked about this, in, you know, from the perspective of my personal mystic experience and other you know, other people that have talked about having similar experiences, um, it, it gets, it gets sort of tied into this idea of, of projection and this idea of psyche. Um, I don't exactly know, I don't exactly know how to talk about that in this context here, but, but when Plato says, when Plato says that you, you that these people who are inspired are bringing something from the divine world into the mortal world, into the material world. That's like, he's just saying something's coming from the unconscious into the conscious, into the, your conscious state. Or Jordan Peterson would say, you've got this realm of potential that, that he calls chaos or the unknown. And that it's from that source where all known things come from. So consciousness is, is comes from un, the unconscious or being comes from non-being. So that that's what we're talking about here. Um, recognizing that whatever God is, whatever these supernatural forces are, that they exist in this unconscious state, or at least that that's what connects us to them. And that's, that's a hop, skip and a jump. I mean, that's literally this far away from saying that what, what God is, is a part of yourself. 
It's the unknown part of yourself, the unconscious part. And it's the same for everyone. And that's my understanding of the mystic experience. That's, that's how it's developed in me. And it's, I'm hearing that coming from Plato here. It's really amazing. All right, so it's amazing to see uh, that Plato acknowledges this connection between God and the unconscious. Um, the same thing that we encounter in the mystic experience, like I said. But especially in the context of creation. So in this context, Plato's talking about inspiration, so he's talking about creating new things that are artistic. You know, new paintings, new sculptures, new, new songs, new hymns, new poems, you know, things that, that are original, that, that didn't exist before, that you're bringing into the world, that you're creating this thing, and that that is connected to creation in general. And what I really mean to say is it's connected to the creation of of the cosmos. So just as Plato describes the interpersonal forces, so these are the instincts or archetypes that are acting on us from our unconscious and driving us to create art or poetry or music, you know, out of nothing, so to speak, or out of the unconscious. The mystic experience and all the mythology, including the Greek mythology that we've talked about with Hesiod and, and Chaos and the Ouroboros and all that stuff, that it describes the cosmos coming into being in exactly the same way. Out, out of nothing somehow. Out of chaos is what Hesiod said. But it's more than, than poetry, art, and music uh, that are inspired. Uh, he ta- uh, Plato talks about prophecy also as being something that's inspired, something that, that comes from the divine realm to, to us through our unconscious. And here we can see that from the unconscious, um, we have access to this hidden or forbidden information. So what, what is prophecy? You know, it's something like knowledge of what might what might come in the future or what will come in the future. Or maybe it's knowledge of what the, the will of the gods are. You know, it's something that we're not supposed to know, but we but we can tap into this way. It's something that something that the Greeks had a word for. The early Christians used this word as well. It's called gnosis. It means secret knowledge. It's interesting. So it's not just creating art, um, but it's also creating revelation prophecy it's bringing knowledge from the unconscious from the from the divine world into the conscious into the material world it's amazing it's amazing and it's very very mystical all right so then plato goes on to say for in this way the god would seem to indicate to us and not allow us to doubt that these beautiful poems are not human or the work of man but divine and the work of god and that the poets are only the interpreters of the gods by whom they are severely possessed. So Jordan Peterson says that um, artists and poets, they're, they're at the vanguard of receiving and representing whatever, whatever the new ideas and concepts are going to be that will shape our future. That things, that things come from the unconscious into this, in, in, in a very vague and hard to describe way, into the inspiration of people. And so you'll see it first in art and in culture start to trickle, trickle down to the rest of, you know, to the rest of us. It starts off um, for in the artists and the poets that are recognizing something coming, something coming out of the darkness, starting to make itself clear. And you'll see these weird things appearing in art and images. And uh, eventually you can see how they, how they were representative of some, some new direction that the world's going into. If you go back and you look at like surrealist art, like if you look at Salvador Dali, 
And you think about the time in which Salvador Dali lived, you know, the second world, first world war going, leading up to the second world war and all the things that were going on in the world. And you just look at his art as a precursor to what, what was going to happen in the world. I mean, that's the kind of thing I mean that jo Jordan would say that the people who can tap into the unconscious the most, the people, the open-minded people that have the, 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 the greatest chance of, of receiving this sort of inspiration, that these are artists and poets and people like that. And they're at the vanguard of whatever's coming. And Plato, Plato finishes this by saying, was not this the lesson which the God intended to teach when by the mouth of the worst poets he sang the best of songs? Am I not right, Ion? So again, here, just getting back to the story, uh, Plato is just, just describing to Ion why it is that Homer inspires him so much and that nobody else does, um, it, because those are the, those are the people that were inspired that are that are affecting him that are that are con that that are the contagion that are that are infecting him. You might say with that inspiration, um, and then and then he's basically saying that's why you like Homer so much and nobody else. Or that's why you like Homer's type of poetry and nobody else's. Because it's not about Homer being a great poet. It's about those particular words at, in that particular instance happen to be inspired. And that's the energy that they have. <laughs> you know, that, because they came from God. Kind of the same way that you might hear a Christian or a Jew talk about scripture. You know, coming from God. It's interesting. Alright, so Socrates says... I wish you would frankly tell me, Ion, what I am going to ask of you. When you produce the greatest effect upon the audience in the recitation of some striking passage, such as the apparition of Odysseus leaping forth on the floor, recognized by the suitors and casting his arrow at his feet, or the description of Achilles rushing at Hector, or the sorrows of Priam, are you in your right mind? Are you not carried out of yourself, and does not your soul in an ecstasy seem to be among the persons or places of which you are speaking, whether they are in Ithaca or in Troy, or whatever may be the scene of the poem? And so what Socrates is asking him is he's saying, hey, Ion, when you get into Homer, when you're doing, when you're reciting it in public, you get really into it, it this, you, know, you feel it sort of possessing your body, you put yourself in the role of person who you're pretending to be, Odysseus or Achilles or Hector or Priam, for a second you become them and you exert that, that you know, uh, presence to publicly to the people that are watching you. And when you do that, doesn't the emotion overcome you? Don't you for a second become Hector and Achilles? Doesn't that, doesn't that happen to you? Isn't that weird? And, and Ion says, that proof strikes home to me, Socrates, for I must frankly confess that at at the tale of pity, my eyes are filled with tears, and when I speak of horrors, my hair stands on end and my heart throbs. So he's agreeing with Socrates. He's saying yes. He's like, when I when I am doing this, when I feel like I've become inspired, and I'm and I'm enjoying this poetry in in in, in, in a way that it's hard for me to even describe. It's a it's a spiritual thing. I feel I literally do feel possessed by some by something supernatural. I don't even feel like myself. I feel like I'm you know, the person I'm pretending to be. And, um, you know, it's, and it's, and it's very strange. So Ion agrees. Ion, he agrees that that's what's happening. And, and the point Socrates is making is, don't you feel like you're out of your right mind? Don't you feel like you're not exactly yourself when that happens? And Ion's like, absolutely. So Socrates says, 
Do you know that the specter is the last of the rings which I am saying receive the power of the original magnet from one another? The rhapsode, like yourself and the actor, are intermediate links, and the poet himself is the first of, of them. Through all these the God sways the souls of men in any direction which he pleases, and makes one man hang down from another. Thus there is a vast chain of dancers and masters and undermasters of choruses, who are suspended, as if from the stone, at the side of the rings which hang down from the muse. And every poet has some muse from whom he is suspended, and by whom he is said to be possessed, which is nearly the same thing, for he has taken a hold of. And from these first rings, which are the poets, depend others, some deriving their inspiration from Orpheus, others from Musaeus. But the greater number are possessed and held by Homer, of whom, Ion, you are one, and are possessed by Homer. And when any one repeats the words of another poet, you go to sleep, and you know not what to say. But when any one recites a strain of Homer, you wake up in a moment, your soul leaps within you, and you have plenty to say. For not by art or knowledge about Homer do you say what you say, but by divine inspiration and by possession. All right, so that's awesome. So there's, there's a lot here. Um, he's basically using this analogy again of the magnet and all the rings being held by this magnet, the, the magnetic field flowing through all of them. And he's saying, in this case, Homer, Homer, or the, 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 you know, the muse was the first, was the, it was the magnet and, and, you know, Homer, Homer spoke that spirit into the world and it passes through, you know, everybody that hears it and, and all the way down to you. And this is why you're inspired by, by Homer. Um, he says some interesting th bit here. He says, through, through all these, the God sways the souls of men in any direction which he pleases and makes one man hang down from another. So that's just like the, the pieces of metal that are hanging from the magnet. He says that he, it, it, he makes one man hang down from another. And the way this speaks to me is something like this. A lot of my ideas, they sort of hang from Jordan Peterson's, uh, along with many other people, you know, um, Wilhelm Schmidt is another, and uh, Ayn Rand is another, and there, there's there are lots. But my ideas hang from Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson's hang from Carl Jung's, and Carl Jung's from Friedrich Nietzsche, and Friedrich Nietzsche from Plato, for Christ's sake. So this is an illustration of what he means. There's this thread. And, and the, when we're talking about ideas, it, it, it transforms it into a whole different argument. It's like you have this thread in ideas, and those ideas, let's say, were originally inspired. They came from the gods somehow. Just like any great idea dawns on you, and you say, aha, I better write that down before I forget it. Where did that great idea come from? You don't know. It came from inspiration. It just came from, from where? From the unconscious, from something like that. Plato would say from the muses, from the gods. So that idea comes, uh, you know, and it, it inspires somebody like Plato. And Plato teaches, and eventually it inspires somebody like Nietzsche. And Nietzsche inspires Jung, and Jung inspires Jordan, and Jordan inspires me. And you can see the thread of these ideas flowing through time and souls. And that it connects the source of that inspiration, where it came from, God, to me today. And this is what he's saying. This is what Plato's saying has happened to Ion. And he says, and there's a vast chain of dancers and masters and undermasters who are suspended from the original stone. 
and so that 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 this is this is the image of the of the magnet and everything being held from it and that invisible force that goes from the magnet through all of these you know chains that are hanging um, that invisible force that's this transpersonal invisible supernatural force the th- something that we would call spirit without really understanding what that means you know without in our modern in our modern scientific paradigm even being able to admit that such a thing might might exist and such a thing might be scientific even amazing all right um all right, he said he uses this phrase here he says and your soul leaps within you um he's talking about that feeling of of, of catching that that possession that you know that that contagion that passes from from you know homer to ion when when you get that feeling like man that's that that's amazing it inspires you and it fills you that i've described that sort of feeling before as intuition and i said something even on the last podcast that is silly that i you know whenever i wax poetic i feel slightly embarrassed but i don't have other words to, to say that that there are things that resonate with my soul that make my spirit sing that may have been the silly thing i said before um but what i mean what i'm trying to describe is when i hear some idea that resonates with me as true deeply true especially in a way i don't i don't exactly quite understand yet that what it does it, it, it's not an understanding it's not a it's not an intellectual understanding it's something like an intuition like my spirit is resonating with the idea that there's some deep part of me, some unconscious part of me that's saying, yes, that's something worthwhile. There's something there that, that you need to understand. And it, it, it's a way for me to know that something is worth exploring. It, it, as Plato says, your, your soul leaps within you, and that is what it feels like. That's what inspiration feels like. That's what intuition feels like. All right, and then the last bit is Socrates just um, saying kind of what he's already said, that he says, I believe you have no art, but speak all these beautiful words about Homer unconsciously under his inspiring influence. So he's basically telling Ion, uh, just to wrap things up, what he told him at the beginning, the reason that you aren't a poet and don't appreciate poetry apart from Homer's is because you have been touched by the spirit that touched Homer. It's just flowing through you the same as it did with him from, from the unconscious and the emphasis on this coming from the unconscious is so amazing. In 400 BC, when the idea of the unconscious hadn't even been d- developed like it would, like it would in, the mo- in the modern era by Carl Jung and Freud and, and others. You know, this is going way back. For Plato to make this connection, that this part of ourselves that we know influences us somehow, and that we know exists somehow, in the same way that we know how to breathe but can't exactly understand how we do it, that there's a part of ourselves that is unconscious and we don't know how great that is but that it's but that it's connected to to god in some in some interesting way so in conclusion um i've said this before you know many times especially lately so apologies but everything is a footnote to plato and that's something that in terms of psychology, in terms of the unconscious and this sort of metaphysics that you hear coming from people like Jordan Peterson and, you know, some physicists like Philip Goff and people that say that consciousness is a ubiquitous part of the, of the natural world, that consciousness plays a role that we, that we haven't 
we haven't confessed to scientifically, that it plays an important role in uh, the cosmos and in our lives, and that we should be admitting our ignorance, that we know that, but don't have any, don't have any way of explaining it. There's a lot yet to be learned here. And everything is a footnote to Plato, of course, including this idea of the unconscious and its connections to uh, potentially the, the cosmos and creation. And I've got more, I've got a lot more that I want to say about everything being a footnote to Plato. I'm going to save some of that for the next Plato episode whenever that happens to come out. But even here in this relatively short dialogue, Ion, it's pretty short, just a conversation between two people, not, not all that complex. We have some interesting things. First, we see this sort of mini-god system that the ancient Greeks believed in, um, represented in a very different, very psychological sort of way, um, right from the mouth of Plato. So, so contrary to our ordinary assumptions, you know, Plato doesn't really describe the gods as entirely distinct from the mortal world, um, or from each other for that matter. Um, more, more importantly, um, not even as, as entirely distinct from the unconscious, which is just an amazing thing to come out of, you know, 400 BC. Um, so, you know, granted, obviously, that the modern understanding of psychology or psyche or, or the unconscious didn't exist exactly at that time. But even so, Plato describes how one must become out of their mind or have what we might call an ego death experience in order to commune with the divine or to receive anything from the unconscious. The, the fact that there's, any, that there's anything to receive from the unconscious at all, the fact that that's an idea, that the unconscious might be a link between infinite, infinite knowledge from the gods, that's such an amazing idea to have and one that we believe in some, in some manner today. And then above that, the conception of gods as interpersonal you know, as the interpersonal power to possess human being psyche kind of indiscriminately towards a specific goal, that that accords exactly with the modern description of archetypes and their associated instincts, that we inherit these categories, these psychic categories from our parents, you know, genetically somehow. And they're like instincts and they create instincts. So we're born with certain knowledge that, we're, that we didn't have to learn. And we've talked about these before, about, you know, like I said, the example with the baby, you know, knowing how to swim or, or to, you know, to roll over and float on its back if it's in water, uh, or the baby chick who, who knows to hide from the shadow of a hawk, but doesn't hide from the shadow of a goose or a duck. You know, a baby chick first born out of the shell, no life experience, so that there is this idea of heritable ideas, for lack of a better word, that are psychic, um, you know, that, that modern psychology calls archetypes that are tied to our instincts. Unbelievable. Unbelievable coming from Plato. Second, we see perhaps one of the earliest historical references that connects the so-called divine realm of the gods to the human unconscious. So, bravo, Plato. Or to our psyche, even. And this places mankind as the intermediary between the supernatural source of being, so what we might call God, and the material world, which is exactly what Jordan Peterson talked about in Maps of Meaning when he was describing all of these ancient creation stories, the Enuma Elish and uh, the Egyptian story of Isis and Osiris and Horus, how in all of these um, you know, ancient religions we see mankind as the intermediary between the world of gods and the world of man, that we're someplace in the middle. 
Um, and, and that, that middle place represents consciousness. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, and what's interesting here is that Plato makes that relationship between God and man as one that's interdependent. So what we're reading here in this, in this story, it goes something like this. It's like the gods may be all powerful, but they cannot act except through us. So that's why they have to possess us, right? And then we, although we're existing in being and we can act, that we require the gods for the inspiration to act. So that's how, that's how Plato's described this in Ion. According to Plato, it seems that the Greeks saw reality as a sort of representational chessboard on which they possess their own representations. You can imagine the chess pieces are like representations of the gods. That's like you and me. And they have to, they have to you know, inspire and possess those pieces and move them around the board. They, so the gods need us as much as we need them in Plato's, in Plato's description. The game, the chess game, doesn't get played without the pieces and without the person moving the pieces. So, so being and non-being interdepend in, in Plato's world, and that is unbelievably mystical. You can't have one without the other. Unbelievable. All right, further, apart from the connection with the unconscious, Plato makes reference to altered states of consciousness as a means for bridging the gap between God and man. So he references the Corybantes, the ecstatic worshippers of uh, Sibylle, and the Bacchic maidens that, that get drunk and have their rights that way. Um, so this, this accords with the mystic experience, which can be achieved using ecstatic ritual, like we talked about, sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of things like that, you know, ecstatic dancing and all that. But also through intoxicants, like Bacchus represents, so, you know, psychedelics most notably and here in Plato we have description of both kinds it's like saying hey not only uh, not only are, God, are the realm of the gods and man connected through the unconscious and there's all sorts of things that can be created that way just like the cosmos was created that way you know art and uh, um, and prophecy and, and all sorts of revelation can be can be born that way and it can be done it can be accomplished through ecstatic ritual or through drugs and that's what modern psychology will tell you that's what um that's what modern science will tell you that those sorts of states of consciousness those altered states of consciousness are connected with a mystical experience and in a transformative religious experience and they can be achieved either through ecstatic ritual or through or through intoxicants so we get that from plato and ion lastly the emphasis on creative out output surrounding religious experience is extremely interesting. So we're focusing right now on when I say when I say uh, creative output, I'm talking about you know the muses inspiring people to create poetry or songs or music or art because that's kind of what what this is kind of focused on. So you 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 see that you know in, in this particular example, but that accords with this Western Judeo-Christian idea that. I, I'm familiar with, of course, the, the the idea that God created the heavens and the earth. God creates the cosmos, but also that human beings were created in the image of God. So God created the cosmos, and we exist as little many versions of God, right? God, in his image, we were created. So this is the idea that just as God created the cosmos, the material reality, that we exist something like 
God's microcosm or God's representational chessboard, like I was like I was saying earlier. Uh, and we're reflecting creation within ourselves. So God creates the cosmos, and then we create art and music and language and culture and architecture and patterns of all types. We give birth to children and to ideas and to objects of our design. And it reminds me of that quote from the Hermes Trismegistus from, from another Greek source, as above, so below. This idea that, that ancient people believed that being, that material reality, you and me, that we're a fractal mirror of God. So just as God creates the cosmos, we do what God, do, what God does. We continue to create. And the most powerful illustration of this very mystical idea is seen in Plato's description of inspiration or, or spiritual possession, however you want to think about it, where he likens it to a magnetic field. You know, Plato tells how the force in a magnet flows through other magnets and exerts its pull from all of them. In this way, the will of God, or maybe God itself, passes from heaven to earth, from our unconscious into our body and psyche. Of this, Plato says, and all of them derive their power of suspension from the original stone. So obviously he's talking about the source of that, of that ma magnetism from the original stone. But what Plato doesn't exactly say, but I think is implied, is extremely amazing and, and extremely mystical. It's something like this. If the divine flows from the unconscious into being, and like the magnetic field, it flows from the, quote, original stone or the source. And it's not merely inspiration which manifests this way, but the divine itself that manifests that way. So the original stone, this is the oneness of the mystic experience. It's the Ouroboros, you know, all opposites united, everything together, that idea. The very thing that Hesiod called chaos, and Jordan B. Peterson calls the matrix of being, or the unknown. It is consciousness that flows from it. It is consciousness that emerges from the unconscious, being from non-being. It is consciousness that is passed along in our DNA and born anew in every infant. It is this which flows from God to man, which links us together in mutual dependence, as Plato said, and which carries us into the future. Plato knew it, I know it, and now you do. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>